0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Getting a cancer diagnosis is of course scary and it can be confusing, especially when there are decisions to be made about treatment and how do you decide what's right for you?
2: Prostate cancer, one of the most common types of cancer in men, can offer a wide range of treatment options, everything from watchful waiting to surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy.
1: On today's program, we'll hear about a pilot study at Mayo Clinic aimed at improving prostate cancer decision-making for patients.
2: Also on the program, we'll discuss common wrist injuries.
1: And rhabdomyolysis, the rare condition where breakdown products from damaged muscle get into the bloodstream and can cause kidney failure.
2: All that, along with this Week's Health and Medical News right after this.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: The prostate gland. Tracy, I have one, you don't. (laughs) Well, it's part of the male reproductive system, and it produces fluid that actually nourishes and protects the sperm. In fact, you know, you can't reproduce without a prostate gland. It's about the size of of a walnut, and it's low in the pelvis and surrounds the urethra, that tube that goes from your bladder to the outside. And unfortunately, as men get older, your prostate tends to get bigger. And we don't really know why, but that kind of puts the squeeze on the urethra and that slows the flow of urine and makes it harder to go. And that's a condition called benign prostatic hypertrophy or hyperplasia, BPH, a completely benign condition. There's a more serious condition, unfortunately, and that is prostate cancer. It's one of the most common types of cancer that is diagnosed in men. And it usually grows slowly, and early on it usually stays confined to the prostate gland, and it it really doesn't do all that much harm. But there are other types of prostate cancer, higher grade, more aggressive, that may need additional treatment, different treatment, and can spread to other parts of the body. So it's a big problem.
2: So how do patients make decisions about screening and treatment, and just who is at risk? Here to discuss prostate cancer decision-making is Dr. John Tilbert and his patient, Colonel Jim Williams. Welcome both of you to the program. We're happy to have you here.
3: Well, thank you for having us. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks to both of you. So, Colonel, retired, James Williams. Jim Williams, it's great to have you with us. Now, uh, tell us your story. You have had prostate cancer, right?
3: I've had prostate cancer, and I'm a 25-year survivor of prostate cancer. Congratulations. I was uh, living in Chicago in 1991 and uh, my wife insisted I go see our primary care physician. Uh, and
1: How old were you then? You must have been just a kid. Based oh, on the 55. 55, okay. I'm almost 81. And your wife said, almost look, you gotta go get checked.
3: You gotta go get checked. Yeah. And so, fortunate for me, my doctor, or oh, the primary care physician, used this new thing called PSA, and arbitrarily included it in the blood work because his father had prostate cancer. And this is 91 when PSA wasn't traditionally part of the blood. flow. Well, it was blood practically event, right? brand new then, wasn't okay. it, Dr. Mm-hmm. Gilbert?
1: Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was
4: within years of it being discovered and widely disseminated as a, a, t- a screening test for prostate cancer.
3: Not yeah. only that, at the time the guidelines were, if the PSA number was between 1 and 4, you were okay. And if it was over 4, you were suspect, and it would probably lead to other tests. Well, my PSA was 11. Oh. Uh, and so I was referred to a urologist. Uh, and my urologist, uh, unlike a lot of urologists, decided that I also needed to see a radiologist because radiologists look at the world differently than he did. <laughs> and I needed to talk to oncologists because they dealt with all kinds of cancers. And I needed to go to Mayo Clinic because they were doing a lot of surgeries.
2: So that's so, how you wound up here. So
1: that's how I wound up here. So you were talking about different options to treat this at the time. Yeah. One was surgery, one was uh, radiation, and one was some kind of medicine, huh? So right. The on- oncologist the right. medical oncologist right.
3: okay but uh, unfortunately uh we have the stove pipe effect we label call in in uh, medicine so depending on what specialist you go to many times you got it down only that well, road that sure and in prostate cancer there is no gold standard uh, so i had the opportunity to look at it from various orientations and ended up here at mayo clinic And I knew I was at the right place because I made a decision here to have my prostate removed, and there was a prince from some... Middle East country, <laughs> who was down the hall from me and had his private 747 parked at Rochester <laughs> Airport uh-huh. and had taken over the Ramada Inn top floor. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I figured it was good enough for the prince. It was good, good enough, enough for, for you. Yeah. Uh,
1: oh, I remember that. Uh, so you had a biopsy, I uh, presume, after when they took your PSA, then they did a, a, a biopsy. They, they did a biopsy. And what did they
4: tell you? Did uh, they say this is pretty aggressive?
3: Well, kind of my, my Gleason score was seven.
1: All right, now explain that to us, Dr. Tilbury. Sure.
4: So Gleason scores can range, total Gleason scores can range from 6 to 10, and it tells us how severe it is. And typically 7 is considered intermediate grade, an area where there's a lot of controversy, but where we're not so sure it's one of those quiet, low-grade cancers that you can just sit and wait or monitor with. Most people would suggest, especially in someone in their 50s who's got a long life expectancy An African-American. and African-American, that those combination of, of risk factors and life expectancy would compel serious consideration for aggressive curative treatment.
1: So explain to us what being African-American has to do with it.
4: Well, population-based studies would suggest that African-Americans are at risk for more aggressive disease and earlier onset of disease and thus worse outcomes than the general population probably twice the rate of aggressive and or fatal prostate cancers to the general population.
1: Hmm. So, Colonel, when you came here, uh, I assume that you saw more than just a urologist. Uh, Did you consider the other options or was it pretty clear cut after you met with Dr. Bob Myers, urologist?
3: What was amazing about this place was that I really came up here for a second opinion because I had already had the biopsy, I already knew the Gleason score. but i wanted to to check out mayo clinic Mm. and what was amazing here was the efficiency of the operation uh all the tests that they wanted were done in one day and at the end of the day before i saw dr bob myers (laughs) he had in his hand and what was also significant to me was that mayo clinic had already gone paperless everybody was carrying these big heavy laptops at the (laughs) at the time but based on my experience here and being introduced to Bob Myers, uh, and he said he had an open appointment in a couple of days, I decided I was going to stay here and made a, what we call in the military a command decision <laughs> and decided to have my prostate removed.
2: And you said uh, that was 1991. Yes. Dr. Tilbert, what has changed in how prostate cancer and
4: prostate issues in in that amount of time? Great question. A lot has changed and a lot hasn't changed. The part that's changed is really the technology. So the technology is much better. We have robotic surgery now, which we think is better, although the studies still haven't definitively proven that. We've got better radiation therapies, more targeted, better at causing less damage to surrounding healthy tissue. What hasn't changed, though, is the dilemma that men face in terms of the the different quality of life implications that come with those decisions. Getting surgery creates one set of potential problems. Getting radiation causes another set of potential problems. And un, uh, using a mode of monitoring for certain low-risk cancers like active surveillance, re getting another scan, seeing your surgeon every six months, that creates its own set of anxieties and worries that are not trivial as well. So those basic challenges remain, even though the technology is considerably better.
1: So I, I, I want to just follow up on that quickly about the robotic surgery. From the, the latest that I had read, and, and it wasn't all that recently, but basically it said, That the robotic surgery is more expensive, the hospitalization is shorter, but the results are the same, whether you have an open prostatectomy or you have robotic surgery. In terms
4: of long-term survival, right. We think there might be some quality of life and symptom control uh, benefits, uh, wound healing, uh, kind of return to work, how long you got to work. Some of that stuff may be around the edges better but the basic sort of long-term, did you get the whole thing out and did you get the cancer controlled is probably comparable, at least in equally competent hands, comparable to the old way of doing it.
3: Let me tell you about how aggressive Mayo Clinic was when I had my prostate Uh The first thing they check is the lymph nodes because traditionally that's where th- the cancer goes when it metastasized. Sure. And, and in the inspection of my lymph nodes they didn't see any prostate cancer. But I did have positive margins uh, at the time and the thought was that well there might be some microscopic cancer that we haven't seen so we want to put you on hormonal therapy. And so I went on a monotherapy with uh, Lupron. Lupron. uh, Lupron. Thank you. uh, After that, so that aggressiveness of here at Mayo Clinic, I think, really saved my life. So I've been cancer-free for 25 years. And the other thing backing all this up, I'm retired military and I had a health care plan which is called TRICARE for Life that is transportable all around the country. So when you look at my journey, I had a primary care physician who was on the top of his game. I had a urologist who didn't think his mode was the only mode. And I came to a world-class facility that were very aggressive, and my insurance covered all that. That's the model for every American. Yeah.
1: You, you know? can't beat it, can you? Congratulations yeah, yeah. on being such a, a long-term survivor, and thanks for sharing your story. We need to take a break, but we're going to talk more when we come back with Colonel Jim Williams and Dr. John Tilbert, both the experts on prostate cancer, one who's had it and one who's studying it. But myth or matter of fact, before we take our break.
2: Myth or matter of fact, treatment for prostate cancer always causes, always causes, <laughs> impotence or incontinence? We'll find out.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with prostate cancer
1: survivor Colonel Jim Williams and also a prostate cancer expert Dr. John Tilbert. And Before we talk a little bit more uh, with these two gentlemen, we've got a myth or matter of fact. We did learn in the first segment that there is no perfect treatment for prostate cancer, but we know that one of the options is surgery.
2: And uh, that is kind of the direction where our myth or matter of fact comes from. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Dr. Tilbert will let you answer this one. Myth or matter of fact, treatment for prostate cancer always causes impotence or incontinence. Is that a myth or a fact?
4: That is a myth. Oh, always is goodness. the trouble word, right? Always yeah. is the trouble word. Good test taking would suggest that you uh, avoid that's the always word. False.
2: <laughs> but I think that's one of the fear that uh, that's one of the fears that men have.
4: And well, it, and rightly so. Right. They're, they're common side effects. Um, anywhere from a third to a half of patients will experience some of those side effects, but it's not everyone. So the important part is talking through. What are the odds of this side effect given my age, my, my current function, and what the surgery or radiation or other treatment is likely to do to my anatomy and physiology?
1: Because there is no clear-cut answer, I I think that I know that both of you have been trying to help men understand what their options are and how to decide what's the best option for them. Uh, Tell us about that, Colonel Williams.
3: Well, in my work with Pennsylvania Prostate Cancer Coalition and Advocacy, we try to make an emphasis on prostate health. We say men should be as sensitive to their prostate as women are To their breasts, as mentioned earlier, all men's prostate enlarge as they get older. Uh, Unfortunately, men my age who have retired and now should be able to enjoy their lives have a very poor quality of life. Uh, They're leaking, they're bleeding, they're impotent, they're incontinent, and they're depressed, and they don't discuss it. And So our effort is trying to improve men's health and using prostate cancer uh, as a tool and demonstrating why men should do that. We need to go to the doctor when we're well, not when we're sick. Mm -hmm. And we live in a society where we have a sick care program. We don't have a health care program. It's based on, and you know, fees for service. You don't get paid unless you diagnose or treat. You don't have the option of sitting down for an hour and discussing with a patient uh, his or her health behavior. We don't pay for that. Uh, so we have that mindset in America that, yeah, when I'm sick, I'll go to the doctor. But you need to go to the doctor when you're well, not when you're sick. And prostate health and why we think the PSA screening tool is as good as anything is because it allows uh, the physician to get a baseline number that can be used in future uh, uh, care of your, your prostate health. And having that baseline number is the foundation to good health.
1: All right, let me ask you, Dr. Tilbert, because there is this organization called the United States Preventive Services Task Force, right? Correct. And uh, up until recently, they recommended that men don't get a PSA between the ages of, uh, what is it, 55 and 69, because they didn't think, they caused it, thought it caused more trouble than, than, it, than it helped. But just recently, they have changed their mind and decided that maybe men between the ages of 55 and 69 should get the test? What's the controversy here?
4: It's very similar to mammography. The tests we have are imperfect. And so when we try to do studies to figure out how much added value a test brings, There's all sorts of noise in that data, and our ability to get a signal about the benefits of a test out of the background noise and variability of everything else going on in populations who develop cancer is very, very difficult to do. So it's not a great test. We've been advocating for years that having a conversation about getting the test is the right first step. Have a good conversation, weigh the risks and benefits, See if that sliver of benefit that might be there from the population-based studies makes it worth it for an individual patient to go and have that test with their doctor. There's probably not a one-size-fits-all answer here, but having a good conversation is a place to start.
2: And so this is a study that you're working on together, or what, what, how are you guys teaming
4: up? Great question. So our study is really more on the treatment side, not on the screening side. On the treatment side, we want to make sure that the kind of experience that Jim and the prince down the hall from him had is a common experience for all men who come through the doors. So make sure that they know the different treatment options, that first visit they have with a doctor after a biopsy. Make sure they see the, the odds of getting better, the likelihood of side effects. Make sure their values in terms of quality of life, sexual function, bowel control, um, intimacy, all that stuff gets talked out in the beginning so that they can think through their options clearly rather than making a instantaneous or fear-based decision to do something that may or may not be in their best interest.
1: And how do you go about helping men do that? Colonel?
3: Well, I preach to them the importance of advocacy uh, and and the importance of maintaining good health uh, and speaking out, coming out of the closet uh, and speaking about their health conditions. And I wish I had really had a, a good answer for that. I've been dealing with this for 25 years. Women are from Venus, men are from Mars. <laughs> uh, one of the mistakes we've made in men's health advocacy is we've tried to emulate the great results the breast cancer community have had in their, in their course for action. But we're dealing with a different breed of cat. <laughs> so men take better care of their cars than they take care of their health. They don't take their cars in because they're sick. They take it in because they understand changing the oil is a good Maintenance, But when you talk to them about you need to go to the doctor when you're well, that you need to know what your baseline numbers are, they don't see the coordination between preventive maintenance and preventive health. And so we need to change that paradigm in America, and we're trying to get a m- higher uh, priority for men's health. In our communities.
1: Yeah, well, it's great, and and thank goodness people like you and Dr. Tilbert are doing that. So, um, if a man is diagnosed with with prostate cancer, how does he go about uh, getting the right information and making a decision? How do you help him?
4: I would say uh, go to trusted organizations and websites, American Cancer Society, the Centers for Disease Control has good things, um, the Agency for Healthcare and Quality and Research, mayoclinic.org. These places can give you independent information and then go to a place that's experienced in getting you all the specialists around you to give you all your options in a timely manner.
1: Colonel Jim Williams, thanks so much for sharing your story and thanks for all that you're doing to help other men who have prostate cancer. And Dr. John Tilbert, thank you so much for being with thank us. Thank you Pleasure to be
3: here. Thank you yes. very much.
2: When we come back, Dr. Sanj Kakar will join me as co-host. We'll discuss the muscle breakdown condition known as rhabdomyolysis.
1: And later on in the show, treatment and prevention of common wrist injuries.
2: Do you have a health related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to Mayo Mayo Radio Mayo Clinic Radio at mayo.edu.
1: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. An estimated 1.6 to 3.8 million traumatic brain injuries happen every year. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. More than 75% of the injuries are sports-related, mild traumatic brain injuries or concussions. While this issue is being recognized at the professional and elite levels, many youth and collegiate athletic programs across the U.S. lack the adequate medical personnel, specifically concussion specialists, to handle these injuries on the sidelines. Doctors at Mayo Clinic, in collaboration with the Northern Arizona University football team, conducted a study published in the journal Neurology. The study, funded by Mayo Clinic, focuses on concussion specialists using telemedicine technology to see if a player needs to be removed from play in real time. Neurologist Dr. Amal Sterling says that telemedicine has been shown to be a safe and effective means to evaluate and treat numerous acute neurologic conditions, including stroke. Now doctors are starting to explore using telemedicine to manage concussions. It works like this, during examinations of players with concussions, doctors at remote locations can ask additional questions and repeat any portion of the physical evaluation. The decision as to whether or not the athlete should be removed from play is made by both the athletic trainer and neurologist. It's all about finding ways to keep athletes of all ages safe. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
5: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar.
0: And I'm Tracy McRae.
5: Rhabdomyolysis is a rare condition in which muscle cells break down and release a substance into the blood that can lead to kidney failure. Most often, it's seen in people who have suffered major injuries or trauma. Sometimes, however, it may develop in response to certain medications, dietary supplements, or drugs. In some cases, rhabdomyolysis may affect athletes such as weightlifters and marathon runners.
2: Recently, the University of Oregon suspended the football strength and conditioning coach for one month without pay after three players were hospitalized with rhabdomyolysis following a series of intense workouts. Here to discuss rhabdomyolysis is Mayo Clinic's physiologist and human performance expert, Dr. Michael Joyner. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Joyner.
6: Tracy, great to be with you, Sanj, nice to see you as well.
2: All right, rhabdomyolysis, it must be like high-functioning athletes that suffer.
6: Well, I think if you go back to the first principles that un- elucidated there, it's muscle damage, frequently crush injuries, trauma, as we see in, in car wrecks, uh, people getting rolled over by farm implements, things like that. Sometimes medications, sometimes other strange things that cause skeletal muscle to break down. But what can happen with athletes is people can push themselves very hard, frequently with what we call eccentric exercise. They can overdo it. And if this is amplified by dehydration, they can have a muscle breakdown, and that muscle breakdown will cause the muscles to leak out a substance called myoglobin. The myoglobin is difficult for the kidneys to clear and, in fact, comes up the kidneys, and so you get this sort of secondary uh, kidney failure, and that's what happened to these athletes at the University of Oregon.
5: So, join Joyner, Athletics has been around since time immemorial. So is this something new, or are we just better at diagnosing this? Uh, yes and yes. Uh,
6: I think we're better at diagnosing it, but I also think it has been around forever, and there are case reports that go back back forever, military recruits and so forth, uh, for long, long periods of time, since the beginning of the medical literature, really. And I think what's happened now with so much high-intensity training in uh, uh, and the emergence of the strength and conditioning coaches, it's easy for people to overdo it. In cases where rhabdomyolysis is seen, what frequently happens is a pretty pretty common series of events. A lot of times it occurs after an elite or highly trained athletes had a bit of a layoff and people come back with a square wave doing the workout they had been doing, and it's a whole lot harder than they thought. Sometimes it's in a group environment where people are pushing each other and it's highly competitive. Sometimes it's an overzealous coach uh, pushing things. Sometimes it's a combination of all those things in dehydration, either pre-existing or a warm environment. And then uh, sometimes it's the type of exercise, again, a lot of negative contractions or eccentric contractions and uh, things like up-downs, uh, too many burpees, uh, and certain types of weightlifting. Has that
2: ever happened to you, Dr. Cacar, too many burpees? I don't
5: even know what an up down is. I've never heard of that before.
2: (laughs) Well, then I think you and I are safe. But that's, I was just going to ask, someone, you know, that's just training for their first marathon or, you know, they're kind of a weekend sports person, they can have problems with rhabdomyolysis as well.
6: Absolutely. They can. And again, it's the same sort of thing. A sudden increase in the intensity and duration of the exercise, frequently warm weather or pre-existing dehydration. Uh, And so what people need to do, whenever you take a big jump up, you know, you build into it slowly and make things progressive, you can tolerate almost anything if you build into Hmm. it.
2: And how common is it? Is it the fact that we're all just trying to work a lot harder? Is that why we're hearing about it more or is it really not that common?
6: I think it's pretty uncommon, Uh, but I do think you, you see it again with these sorts of crush injuries and in response to trauma. But I think you see it you know, at the time of, of spring football, the beginning of practice, uh, when the weather is warm, and it seems to kind of come and go uh, in waves. And then in the current environment, uh, you know, anything that happens anywhere in the world Sure. Uh, gets reported and ends up, you know, on the front page of some place right. where it used to be in the back page. You know, three weeks ago, this happened in Australia. There's one fascinating case report in the medical literature of somebody who'd been an elite athlete and actually had a, an advanced degree in exercise science, who decided one day to see how many pull-ups they could do, and they did repeated sets of pull-ups, and there are these incredible reports of huge spikes in his creatine kinase, which is a marker of muscle breakdown over time. So even people that should know better. Are susceptible for to this, and I think the thing people have to ask themselves, whether they're elite athletes, whether they're people just trying to get fitter, a. What is the purpose of this workout in the short run? B. What are your goals? And C. Is this a sustainable program? Mm-hmm. So, people, if you're going to be get fitter over time, whether you're training for the Olympics or you're training to lose five pounds so you look a little bit better at the beach, the goal should be to develop a sustainable program, which means it needs to be graded needs to be progressive, and you have to have a combination of harder days and easier days.
2: Ease your way into the workout. Yes, and that's
6: true whether whether you're somebody training for the Olympic marathon after, a, a, you know, a few weeks sure. off or an injury. Or, again, whether you're somebody, uh, you know, who's participating in cardiac rehab or, or trying to, uh, you know, improve their diabetes management. What
2: are... So I'm not quite sure. When someone has rhabdomyolysis, do they present the same way at the emergency room, or do they just collapse? What happens to them?
6: Well, they certainly can collapse, and you certainly can see it with severe heat stress. But frequently, uh, people uh, get an acute kidney failure. They have uh, this sort of uh, strange, dark-colored urine, tremendous skeletal muscle soreness, and that's what people would look for and how they would
5: present, and they just
6: feel terrible.
5: And is the muscle damage permanent? you talked about the creatinine kinase levels going up.
6: No, the muscle damage is not permanent. And in fact, even if you do a moderate workout or a reasonably hard workout that doesn't put your health at any risk, you will see small spikes in your creatine kinase, and that's actually a good thing because when you adapt, it's a, it's it's really a, a, almost a subclinical or a micro injury followed by repair, which makes your skeletal muscles hypertrophy, and makes you stronger over time. So that's not anything per se to be worried about. It's just when it becomes severe and debilitating when you run into problems.
2: And as you've said, the best way to prevent it is just to ease into a workout, to not do these big, oh, I was doing this three months ago before I yes. wrecked my you know, knee or whatever. Or took time off for yeah. Christmas or
6: whatever it is. Sure. And I think, again, people need to always ask themselves, what is the purpose of this workout? What is the purpose of this workout? And and I can't imagine the purpose of any workout being to destroy your skeletal muscles so badly that you damage your kidneys.
2: What is the purpose of your workout?
6: Uh, you know, I, I used to be a serious competitive athlete, but now I'm, I've tried to gotten into I'm 58 and a half, and I've gotten into sort of an anti-aging program mm-hmm. where I focus a lot on some cardiovascular fitness because I want to keep that as high as mm-hmm. possible. A lot more on muscle mass, especially lower extremity muscle mass, than I used to. With with squats and um, leg press and and burpees of my own, mm-hmm. jumping rope, and then I also focus on coordination because, as will tell you, as an orthopedic surgeon, one of the things, and I'm an anesthesiologist, we hate to see more than anything on call, is an older person who's slipped and has broken a bone, especially a hip, sometimes a spine, pelvis, arm, upper extremity and you want to stay as coordinated as possible for as long as possible so that if you do start to slip on the ice you can catch yourself regain your balance and not fall
2: for me i'm just thinking stress release but stress relief but i think i should probably count a few more of those how about you I, i'm
5: just thinking it's 30 minutes when does it get to zero and then i can stop <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well,
6: that's one of the things you can do with these fancy new watches is put the put them on countdown mode and so that 30 minutes will maybe go a little bit faster.
2: Just like that, Dr. Katkar. Just like that. <laughs> We've been discussing rhabdomyolysis with Dr. Michael Joyner, human performance expert. Thank you so much for joining us. It was good to see you.
6: Great to be here.
2: We're going to take a short break. Dr. Sanj Kakar will stick around as co-host and guest. When we come back, we'll discuss common wrist injuries.
5: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae. Dr. Kakar, we've got something uh, that happens on occasion that we have a guest who is unable to join us. And so I thought you and I should talk about wrist injuries. What do you say?
5: That's an area close to my heart, so I'm happy to talk about what we do on a daily basis.
2: Yeah, you're getting the hang of being a co-host here when Dr. Shives is away. So maybe reintroduce yourself to our listeners. What is it that you do besides co-host Mayo Clinic Radio? Well,
5: well I'm fortunate to be one of Dr. Shives's junior partners. It's it's nice to try and sit in and try and fulfill his aura. But uh, my daily practice is a uh, hand and wrist uh, specialty, so we deal with a lot of people who come in. Uh, The Weekend Warriors, for example, or people who come in with problems such as thumb arthritis or carpal tunnel. We do the whole gamut.
2: All right, let's go with that first uh, batch of people, the Weekend Warriors, uh, skateboarding or skiing. We're just coming out of that season now. What is it that is different, or let's talk about what is changing in the world of how you treat wrist injuries. What do you say?
5: Sure. So I I don't look at them as the weekend warriors. I just look at them as non-professional athlete that we (laughs) take care of. We're all one of those, That's
2: me. That's right.
5: So so we we see a lot of injuries, especially at this time of year, for example, people snowboarding or skiing. But it doesn't have to be that. Uh, In the summer, for example, people skateboarding. And we've all done it. We've all fallen on our wrists. And thankfully, most of the time, it's not an issue. But there are times when you will sprain or injure your wrist or break a bone. And so that's what we're sort of dealing with, especially now.
2: And is it a difference um, what age a person is, how their wrist is going to be injured?
5: Yes. So... uh Obviously, we've seen the people on ski slopes that are the young kids. They're fearless. And their bones tend to be a little bit more elastic and tend not to break. But, for example, they can suffer more ligament injuries. And the ligaments are the tissues that connect the bones in your wrist. Whereas people, say, of my age who fall over tend to break their wrists. And that actually is called a fracture. And rather than sustaining a ligament injury, they will break their wrist And there's degrees of acceptability. So most people, when they come in, they get an X-ray and we'll look at the alignment of the bones. And if the bones look well aligned, we'll treat them in the cast. And that takes about six weeks to heal. But sometimes it can be displaced and these patients will need an operation.
2: Is a ligament injury worse or is a break worse?
5: That's a good question. I would say that the uh, wrist fractures tend to be be easier to treat than ligament injuries because bones tend to heal more predictably compared to ligament injuries. But um, we're lucky here at Mayo, we have uh, a wonderful partner, Dr. Kristen Zau, and she's just received a federal uh, grant to better allow us to assess these ligament injuries and determine how best to treat them.
2: So what happens to the ligament? Does it get, I mean, a break, I understand. The bone broken, got it. Yes. But does the ligament get um, extra stretched or does it get torn? What happens
5: to it? Well, it's a good point, Tracy. So they can stretch out, but usually they tear off. And the best time to treat a ligament injury is if it happens straight away. That's the best time when ligaments have their ability to repair and heal, and that requires an operation. But... I'm sure you know many people who have, may have sprained their wrist and they thought it would get better, and it never did. And they eventually go and see their doctor maybe a year later. And at that stage, it's very hard to repair that ligament. And that, we need to try reconstruction techniques. Now, this was actually uh, first recognized back in 1972 at Mayo Clinic by Dr. Dobbins and Lynchide. So we have a mm-hmm. strong history here. But unfortunately, despite many techniques, we don't have the gold standard in terms of how to treat them.
2: So what is it? You said Dr. Zhao is studying yes. different treatment... At- efforts for ligament injury?
5: So what she's doing is that she has a team um, of scientists whereby we're scanning the wrist in real time. And so that allows us to look at how the bones are moving and try and analyze where in fact the ligament injury is happening. Is it happening on the back of the wrist or at the front of the wrist or both? And then that will allow us to guide our treatment to really hone in on what area needs to be first fixed as opposed to a, a hammer trying to hit uh, a nail in every case.
2: What would the difference be, though, if you're going to end up repairing it surgically? Yes. What is the difference if it's a front or a back? Just that you know before you get in there?
5: Exactly. And that will also allow us to pinpoint where it is. So if it's just a ligament tear at the back of the wrist, and that's where we'll focus our attention. But invariably, it happens on the front side as well. So if you imagine a door hinge, you can only stop it from opening and closing at one particular Ah. site. But with this technology, it'll allow us to see if the hinge is actually at the top of the door, at the bottom of the door, or both of the hinges are off, and hence we can target that area to fix. So the surgery
2: is just more efficient?
5: It's more exact.
2: Okay. Is there any other benefits of knowing that before you go in for the surgery?
5: Well, it can also help us to determine how best to fix them. So for example, recently we've been not only fixing this with a tendon graft, which is what we usually do, but tendons stretch out, and so patients are immobilized for a long period of time. So now what we're doing is actually putting what you would maybe think of it like a shoelace and putting it in there to give you extra strength to these ligament reconstructions so we can move the patients quicker as opposed to immobilizing them for months, which is what we traditionally do.
2: You said grafting a tendon in there? Where, yes. that's that a donor type of thing, or what is that? It
5: could be a donor tendon, or some of us actually have an extra tendon on the front of our wrists. And if you imagine the tendon as being a rope, we're just taking the rope out from the wrist, which we don't use, and putting it into another area
2: so uh figuring out the tendon injury before Mm -hmm. surgery that's something that is new what else what else is new in the in treating wrist injuries?
5: So one of the beautiful uh, parts of working at Mayo Clinic is that we, we work with people far cleverer than ourselves. <laughs> and so uh, I had had fortune to work with uh, Dr. Christopher Evans, who is part of the Physical Medicine and Rehab Department. And we've started a division initiative within the hand surgery of patients. When they break their wrists, sometimes it injures the cartilage. And the cartilage is the shining, is the shiny layer at the end of the bones. So if you imagine two china plates rubbing on each other, they're smooth, but when you break your wrist, it's like breaking that china plate, and no matter how perfectly you piece it together, you'll always have little ridges, and those ridges can cause cartilage damage, and if untreated, it can cause arthritis. So thanks to Dr. Evans, he has identified a steroid that we all use in regular life, and we're randomizing patients. It's the only FDA-approved study in the United States whereby patients who have a wrist fracture which breaks the cartilage, they're either randomized to a one off steroid injection or they're randomized to a sort of water injection. And we're following these patients to see if indeed this prevents the cartilage from dying and prevent arthritis.
2: So the China plate going back to that is still it's broken. Yes. It still has a little bit of a saw like effect on the cartilage. Yes. But you're trying to see if it doesn't damage the cartilage as much or that the cartilage can recover from that?
5: So the cartilage is already injured at the time of injury. But what happens is that the cells that make the cartilage can die. And what we're trying to hope with this injection is prevent those cells from dying and hence prevent cartilage from breaking down.
2: Any initial findings you can share?
5: No, the the beauty of this is that uh, the the investigators and the surgeons do not know what we're injecting. Ah. And so we're completely blinded to this. So patients are still treated in the normal way that we would but we will find out uh, in about two years' time it sh- actually if this had an effect or not.
2: Okay, so here's what I've learned about you, and I don't know, have we been working together two years or something like that now? I think that you've got a little bit of researcher in you, although you're not officially in research here at Mayo Clinic, are you?
5: Well, we all do research. That's, right. what I think, what, what sort of brought us into the field, and, and if you look at the Mayo emblem, it has three shields, the clinical care, education and research, and it's, it's no happenstance whereby all of those shields are interwoven amongst each mm-hmm. other. And so it really, we're lucky f- to treat patients. Patients give us the questions that we don't have the answers to, and hence that's what spawns the research. But research is a team game. We have wonderful research here and scientists, and we can't work without them uh, to try and answer these questions.
2: Finally, one of the things you said, we've got the un, the non-professional athletes that get injured yes. <laughs> when we fall yes. off of our bike or whatever it is that we fall. And then elderly folks who fall and break their wrist, they yes. probably do more wrist breaks yes. than ligament injuries. Correct. Is there anything new in um, helping them with wrist injuries?
5: Well, actually, there's a lot of information that's coming out that perhaps we may have been a little bit too aggressive in fixing all of those wrist fractures. And there's good data showing that patients aged over 65, if they're treated with or without surgery and and compared, those who are treated with surgery have better looking x-rays, because obviously we've done something to make the bones align better, and they have better grip strength, but functionally they actually do the same. Hmm. And so it sort of brings into question of, we need to individualize the treatment on each of these patients, because a person who's over 65 may not be as active as somebody who's under 65, Mm -hmm. so I think we have to look at their functionality as opposed to their age.
2: Excellent. we have always got a lot of information to share. And when I ask what you're interested in, of course, we have all sorts of information to share. Thank you so much.
5: Thank you, Tracy.
2: That's my conversation with Dr. Sanj Kakar about wrist injuries and ligament injuries, what's new and how to treat them. Thanks again, Dr. Kakar. My pleasure. And that's our program for this week.
5: For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
2: Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio.
5: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka.
0: And I'm Tracy McRae.
5: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.